Welcome, I'm your host, Greg McEwen, and we're here for part two of my conversation with Oliver Berkman. He wrote a great, big, successful column for The Guardian for years, and more recently has attained some notoriety for the book called 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals. By the end of today's episode, you will have rewired a certain part of your brain that keeps you caught, stressed all the time and have permission to make a different choice. Let's get to it. Thank you to everyone who has subscribed to this podcast. And if you are not one of those people, subscribe right now. Pause, subscribe, and then make it easy on yourself to get new episodes every Tuesday and Thursday. In my book, Effortless, I literally start in chapter one with an image of those rocks and with an image of too many big rocks, literally. Because the presumption that if you put the most important things first, you will therefore fit everything in is wrong. That is wrong. Even while the metaphor is still helpful and basically right, yeah. put the most important things in first. Yeah. But it's what do you do next when yeah. you discover, well, actually, you don't have enough time yeah. to do everything, even the essential things. Well, that's the weird thing to me is I think we must have been writing these things basically during the same period of time. Yeah. I don't think, yeah, because when did Effortless come out? It was Two years ago. Yeah, and so did 4,000 Weeks. Yeah, so our yeah. brains were in a similar place. The yeah. lockdowns were happening. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so help listeners get to something actionable. With this as the framework, with this as the reality, in throwing out the idea that you have limitless time, with throwing out the idea that efficiency is the answer, what do you do instead? I think it's important to begin and answer that by saying that I do think the perspective shift is the thing that matters the most. The mindset shift is the most important part. Right. I think anyone listening to this is going to be smart enough, once they have a taste of that mindset shift, to see which specific ways in which they run their day, schedule their tasks are consistent with it and which of them are sort of pushing against it in an unhelpful fashion. But broadly speaking, I've found the kinds of techniques and approaches that are most consistent with this when it comes to my own work, which is a relatively solitary kind of work. Mm. um, And I'm only talking about work here, but is anything that involves sort of conscious limitations on work in progress, right? Anything, that any form of workflow system that brings the number of things I'm actually trying to complete at the moment down to a smaller number. So this is the kind of stuff that Jim Benson has written about in his book, Personal Kanban. It's the kind of stuff that it's in the background, I think, of a lot of Cal Newport's work. What One, one approach to this that I find very useful is what I refer to in the book as fixed volume productivity, which is only a small tweak, as I acknowledge on Carl's fixed schedule productivity. But the idea of 
beginning first with the by asking yourself how much time you are realistically able and willing to dedicate either to work or to a certain kind of focused work in the course of a day or a week. And then as the second step, deciding what is most important to fit into that predetermined volume of time, as opposed to what we do instinctively otherwise, which is like wake up in the morning and make a list of all the things that we feel need to be done by the end of the day, regardless of whether that's realistic or not. So that's just a very simple trick. Something that I'm always trying to do as a writer is find and, and uh, fine tune the specific sort of size of packet of work that I can, of writing work that I can really ask of myself on a daily basis. And it's almost always a lot smaller than on part of me feels I ought to be able to fit in. But the point is that if I can sort of keep myself to that and show up for it day after day, the work accumulates much faster, right? So it's another example of like really trying to just put very clear limits around what I'm claiming I'm going to be able to do with my time and then following through on it. I mean, I, this doesn't, this is not going to strike you as a revolutionary insight. What all they all have in common for me is just that they put finitude first, right? They put this sort of easy to ignore, but actually non-negotiable fact front and center, and then say, given this context that you are completely powerless to alter, what are, what would be the best way to use your, the power that you do have, which is the power to, you know, assign some of that time to certain things rather than others. Well, you're talking about forcing functions that are consistent with the great reality. It's distributing that one big reality into our daily rituals and schedule so that you stop trying to solve the problem by just shoving more into every little bit you, you accept it. I can't do it all. Right. I was going to say, and sort of scaffolding this insight that we're talking about into daily life such that you don't actually need to wake up in the morning necessarily on a given, you know, Wednesday morning with a deep feeling of one's finitude because you have put these structures in place that will act as guide rails and keep you honest. You know, I'm sometimes I'm in this mindset and sometimes I'm slipping back into the kind of anxious, nervous attempt to do it all. But if I have some structure in my workflow that says like, each day I'm trying to do this, it keeps me in the, it keeps me practicing the message of the mindset, whether or not I'm sort of deeply in it in that moment. This episode is sponsored by Shopify, selling a little or a lot. <coughs> Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. So whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point-of-sale system, whenever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. So sell more with less effort, thanks to Shopify Magic, which is your AI-powered all-star. In my experience, with every business that I have built, 
including this podcast, there are breakthrough moments, and those moments are often the result of finding the right partner. And I think that's a way to think about Shopify, because no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash greg, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash greg now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash greg. This episode is brought to you by JustWorks. Are you still doing payroll manually in your business? Do you know someone who is? Because it is time to change that. With, with an exclusive offer. JustWorks supports small businesses with simple, seamless solutions like integrated payroll. For a limited time only, try out their payroll plan for one month free. As a reliable and flexible platform, JustWorks earns back time so you can focus on running your small business with big confidence. Designed to be flexible, JustWorks can support teams of one to as many as your small business hires, including contractors. In just 30 minutes, Set up payroll that streamlines paying your team, saves time, mitigates errors, and is desktop and mobile friendly. You can even integrate time tracking and benefits that support running your small business with big confidence. Don't miss your chance to get one month free by visiting justworks.com slash Greg. Secure the limited time offer and start letting JustWorks run your payroll so you don't have to. Start your free month now at justworks.com slash Greg. Anna and I, my wife and I, went to a keynote event that I was speaking at, and we had some relatively luxurious time just to talk, just to be. It was a good environment, too, so we were absent the stresses and burdens of normal life. And one of the discoveries that came to me that stayed with me for quite a while afterwards was this alleviation many goals and aspirations that I suddenly felt I didn't have to do. I don't have to. Maybe like it's not even realistic to try and achieve those things. There's this more modest perspective on life that is real and more tangible and a contribution I actually can make and that would be meaningful for me. And it was really marvelous to suddenly just feel all of that stress dissipating. Right. It, it seems to me that when we have these two thoughts in our head, you know, I have to, and at the same time, I can't, all that's produced, all the heat that's produced is just stress. And that seems to be exactly the burden of the modern efficiency movement is, well, you have to do a thousand times more than you're doing, and but you absolutely can't. <laughs> so just try to, you know, all right. it is just anxiety, stress, and it pushes us towards distraction, in fact, because we just want to, you know, run away from that impossible game. Yes, it seems to me that we often are in an impossible game. And it's such a relief to shift our perspective to the point that the game becomes winnable again, your reaction. I think you just express it beautifully. It makes me think of, there's a there's a very famous principle in ethical philosophy. I think it comes from Immanuel Kant, which is summarized as ought implies can, right? That you can't, <laughs> meaningfully, you can't meaningfully have a moral obligation if you can't fulfill that moral obligation. 
if you are trapped in a burning building and I'm walking by, then maybe I have a moral obligation to rescue you. But if I'm trapped in another room of that building, it makes no sense to talk about me having an obligation to rescue you because I can't do the thing that is at issue. And in the same way, like, obviously this kind of intellectual realization is not sufficient to solve everything, but like, it just makes no sense, right? As you say, to feel like you have to do more than you can. This is a sort of logically, yeah, it's a logically bankrupt thought. I must do more than I can do, right? It, it, it doesn't get off the ground. And so, you know, I, I, that doesn't mean that it can't have a lot of psychological hold on us because we were raised in, you know, to be sort of in that great phrase, insecure overachievers, right? We're raised mm -hmm. to think that we've got to keep fighting this fight, but you can't get there. Another way of getting at something very similar, I think, putting it in a sort of temporal future and past context is to say that like, you never have to take responsibility for or figure out what to do about anything other than the very next moment of your life, right? You do not really look out over a vista of the whole of the rest of your life and you've got to be really careful that you're packing things into it. Doesn't mean you can't use, doesn't mean sometimes the right thing to do with the next moment is planning or forecasting or strategizing for the future. Of course it might be, but actually all you ever have to deal with is this moment and this moment. And there's one thing basically, effectively, that you can do with each of those moments. And yeah, it's just this enormous weight off one's shoulders that, you know, traditionally has been, we've been unburdened of by various sort of religious doctrines that don't have so much purchase for so many people these days. And I just want to, if I can, I just want to mention a one way of phrasing this that always sort of gets me in my gut, which comes from a British-born Zen teacher called G.U. Kennett. Peggy Kennett, who said that her, her method of teaching was not to lighten the burden of the student, but to make it so heavy that he or she would put it down. And I sort mm. of get shivers up my spine. It won't work for everyone, but I get shivers up my spine when I think about that, because it's this notion that it's when you see that the thing you were trying to do was absurdly impossible, that it becomes easy to mm. go and do mm -hmm. the things that are possible. Mm -hmm. It's not by sort of, you know, making the burden lighter is coming is becoming more efficient, is trying to strategize ways to make the terrible bind that you're in feel a little bit less painful. Making it so heavy that you put it down is seeing that the whole thing is a ridiculous way to think about time, and it's very hard to keep beating yourself up for something that you don't really think anyone could do in the first place. Yeah, sometimes I think about this in the sense of if you can't try any harder, if you absolutely can't push yourself anymore or be any more efficient, it's time to look for a new path. Right, right. And I do think there's some benefit in the sort of extremity of our times that more and more people are faced with that. This, I can't move any faster. I can't write any more emails. I can't optimize further than I am and I can't work any harder. So now what? Right. And and there is, I love that idea. It's so heavy, you have to put it down. Yeah. And look, there is a different way to do life. Speaking of that different way, in the end of the paperback version of this book, you have an interview with James Hollis. There are a lot of marvelous takeaways from that. But one thing that he quotes is Emily Dickinson, who says, the sailor cannot see the north, but knows the needle can. Can you talk more about why you interviewed him and 
what that means to you now. Yeah, I think one of the things that people sometimes sort of want from a book like this or from anyone who's sort of standing up and talking about building a meaningful life is kind of some way of figuring out what things do constitute a meaningful life and what things don't. And the the Jungian perspective on all this, which is the tradition that James Hollis is writing in, is really powerful to me because of the way in which it engages with the question of like, well, this is an intuitive matter, not in some sort of woolly sense of asking the universe and seeing what comes back, but this notion that on some level you do know the right direction for yourself. Mm. And it's a matter of reconnecting with that level. Now, whether this is sort of true in some kind of neuroscientific way, I'm not sure it even really matters, right? It's a practice. And one of the ways in which James Hollis talks about connecting with that sort of internal navigation system that, that Emily Dickinson is writing about there is with questions like this one that I got from him that I think is so powerful, which is asking whether a choice that you're considering or a path that you're on in life, whether it enlarges you or diminishes you. And again, won't work for everybody, but this is a form of language that for me kind of bypasses that very unhelpful question of like, will this make me happy or not? Firstly, because we're terrible at predicting what will make us happy. Secondly, because happiness may not quite express the thing that we're going for here when it comes to living a full and present life. And yet, in all sorts of contexts, since I first encountered that, I have found this question, is this the enlarging path, you know, to be really helpful? Because it sort of encourages you to keep going through a certain kind of difficulty. And it distinguishes that from a different kind of difficulty. So, you know, I think relationships provide a very obvious example of this. There are the kind of difficulties that you have in a relationship or marriage that tell you, like, this is a toxic relationship and I have to get out. And then there are the kind of difficulties that are part of growing and maturing and living with a whole other person who's got their own whole other, you know, consciousness. And and you wouldn't want to be a person who just walked away at the first sign of difficulty. You also wouldn't want to be a person that, you know, forced yourself to go against your intuitions when a difficulty was actually a red flag. And I think this applies to work choices and all other sorts of things. The point is, in some deep place you know, and even whether that's really true or not, it's just a very useful heuristic for taking that kind of decision. And I think it has to do with the feeling that you are growing, that you are encountering reality, and that the suffering that is encountered along the way is the suffering of stepping more and more fully into this, like, actual situation in which we find ourselves, as opposed to the suffering of avoiding it and fleeing it and trying not to think about it, which is a different thing and feels in some very subtle way does feel different. This episode is brought to you by Backblaze. And what I wish was brought to you today was a story about how Backblaze helped me recently to get all of my file back that was just eliminated, but I didn't have Backblaze at the time. And so a really important document that I had been working on for months has been deleted out of the cloud. And if I'd had Backblaze, just like over 55 billion files that they've helped customers restore, I'd be okay. So seriously, back up your stuff. Receive a fully featured, no-risk free trial at 
backblaze.com forward slash Greg. That's B-A-C-K-B-L-A-Z-E dot com forward slash Greg. You can go there, play with it, start protecting yourself from potential bad times. Start today. There's a psychological term that I think speaks to what you're describing here. It's referencing. And it's the ability that if I say to you, well, you just seem really frustrated today. And you go internally, you go, am I? No, that's not true. Mm -hmm. And you can say, that's not how I'm feeling right now. I might be feeling, you know, I've got too many things going on today, but I don't feel, you know, what you're saying. Or vice versa, as we've had moments of this conversation. Yes, that's right. That's what I'm saying. That's what I feel about that. That internal ability seems to be close to universal. And so the fact that we even have that, that we can reference internally whether something seems true or not. There's this marvelous story I came across where a mother has her two children. They've got into a fight and she's asking them, you know, what's been going on? She brings her, her daughter in who's really upset. She's crying. She's mad. And, you know, you know what, why are you so mad? Well, my brother said I was dumb. And so she says, okay, I want you to close your eyes for a moment. I want you to breathe for a moment. And I want you to listen to me. So she closes her eyes. She does this. She says, you are dumb. And then she opens her eyes. Of course, she's not expecting that. And she said, is what I just said true? She said, no, it's not true. And she goes, runs away happily. Now, <laughs> I'm pulling that from memory. It might be that the phrase was a little different, but the idea that she could sense within that this thing that was happening externally was not true for her, was not mm -hmm. right, helped her to then say, well, I'm not bothered that my brother called me that. It was the belief at first that what he's saying is true that, that made me so frustrated. And so I just sort of offer this back to you as a, as a thought and a reaction. The very fact we're able to do this means perhaps we can have a sort of conversation with ourselves. And that, I think, is the premise of this Q&A that you were having, that yeah. we're discussing. You, you, your reactions? Yeah, no, ab absolutely. I think it's a conversation. It's the sort of idea of multiple parts of our psyches and some of them are not so easy to articulate until somebody leads you through a question like 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 James Hollis's or like the mothers in your anecdote there but it's just very strange when you stop and reflect that this notion of navigating intuitively perhaps even to the extent of abandoning certain kinds of scheduling right and just sort of doing what seems to be the right thing to do in every moment it's quite strange on reflection to think that has become seen as kind of woo-woo, right? Because it's simply, at least in one version, it's simply consulting the full range of... Of human the, capacity. Right. And, the, and the, all the aspects of one's cognition and thinking that are beyond most immediately like accessible and articulable working memory, right? There's a lot more going on than that. If that was all that was going on with us, we would not be capable of the things we are. So yeah, I'm on a sort of it's a long, slow journey, but I think I am on a. I am generally in my certainly in my working life becoming, moving much more towards that sort of navigating via intuition stance, which takes some kind of guts or something. If you're totally used to achieving your feelings of security through planning and list making and things like this, but it mm -hmm. is ultimately, I think, more 
it is it does involve entering more fully into the way things actually are. There's one more thing I wanted to get to here. We've been talking about Jung sort of parenthetically, but he's quoted in this conversation here as saying, the greatest burden that a child must bear is the unlived life of the parents. Yeah. That hit me hard. Can you share more about that? I think what Jung means by that is it's pretty much there on its face. This is the idea that in all sorts of ways, the, the sort of attempt to live out the life that a parent was unable to live or too scared to live or not in a position to live is something that then children take on to themselves in their quest to feel loved and adequate and worthy. And so, of course, this is just one way of describing this very famous phenomenon you see all the time where people are sort of living out the expectations of parents. I suppose the extreme versions are always in kind of sporting stars or stage, you know, child actors. There's always that cliche that actually it's the it's what the parents wanted for themselves. I think, you know, anything like this kind of parenting advice as a parent strikes me like it's my first reaction is it freaks me out and makes me think like, oh my goodness, am I doing things wrong in some respect? Have I got to change? <laughs> but I think it's actually a really liberating thought, right? It says that there isn't a sort of baked in conflict between being the best parent you can be and pursuing your interests and passions. It says that one of the best things that you can do for your children is to stay true to some of the things that matter the most to you instead of putting them all on hold for your children. Instead of maybe, you know, going off in your career in directions that don't speak to you because you think you need to reach a certain kind of financial security for your children. I think it's quite a powerful message to think about in the context of, you know, often is brought up this phrase in the context of women working versus staying at home with their kids. Obviously applies to everybody, but it comes up obviously in the context of women. You know, maybe one of the very best things you can do to be a mother to a daughter is to show her like just what cool things are achievable in the world of work. And so it's a really interesting example of something that I keep coming up against, keep coming to in different contexts, which is like, there isn't necessarily some built-in contradiction at the core of life, right? This does all sort of fit together. Doing the things that are the most meaningful to you, the things that are the best for the people around you, like they can be the same things. It's not necessarily a choice that we have to make. Oliver, it's been a great privilege to have you on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much. What is one thing that stood out to you today? What is one thing you can do differently immediately to put this mindset into practice? And who is someone you can share this episode with so that they can benefit and be part of the conversation as well? If today's episode resonated with you, don't let the conversation end here. Click the subscribe button to stay updated with our future episodes. I want these conversations to be as engaging and as valuable as possible. And who better to guide me than you? Leave a review on Apple Podcasts and share what aspects of this episode you enjoyed the most. Your feedback directly influences the conversations in the future and allows me and my team to continuously evolve and improve. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.
This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the Podcast Princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you wanna learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox or wherever you listen to your podcasts.